Welcome to the 172nd episode of Reverse Rep Radio. I'm Andy Ryan. And I'm Toby Chad. It's 29 years to the day since Zimbabwe's first test victory. It came at the 11th attempt and they defeated Pakistan in Harare by an innings and 64 runs. Hundreds for both the Flower Brothers and a six for Fahith Streak. Welcome to the podcast that would love to see Zimbabwe competing there again. Those were the days, the Flower Brothers and Heath Heath Streak going hammer for tongs. Now, um, we would like to thank everyone who voted for us in the world podcast sports awards whatever it was called um having said that we don't know if we didn't win my mother wrote to me yesterday and told me that we didn't win um so we don't know if anyone voted for us but if you did if you were generous that's the kind of maternal us, feedback you want don't you it, it, it is it is um but we nevertheless our spirit undimmed we are going to um we are going to plow on uh, regardless and maybe by episode 344 uh, we'll be in a position to to win it um this episode what are we going to be talking about we're going to be talking about some of the cricket that's been happening recently as we always do we're going to be delving into a fascinating from the archives from uh, andy all about a a painting painting called the cricketers there you go there's a clue um and we're going to be reviewing shane warne a hampshire love story which isn't a love affair that shane warne got up to when he was in hampshire it's a story of shane warne's relationship with the county and club of hampshire um now andy you have been listening you're actually as i look at you down skype you're wearing some some rather um natty um, uh, wireless Bluetooth um, headphones, and they are they the things that have been enabling you to keep up with the cricket recently? I thought you were going to describe my very ugly hoodie as natty, which would have been a, a turn up for oh, the. Oh, your hair? We could talk no, about your so haircut as well. I do. I haven't commented on your haircut. They're very neat, very spring-like. This, this, this is an, you know, this is the joys of a, of an audio medium. These things are all left to the the listener's imagination. Um, so I woke up last Sunday morning in a Gothic temple, as you do. <laughs> And we've mentioned on this Saturday night. That was a big Saturday night. (laughs) I don't know why I woke up there. No, we um, mentioned on this podcast before the Delights of the Landmark Trust, Mm. which is a British charity that basically takes kind of old, unusual, notable buildings, quite a lot of them actually sort of follies, which this one was, a sort of eccentric architectural Mm. creation in the grounds of a stately home. And they maintain them, look after them, and they fund all that by letting people stay in them, which is rather wonderful. So we stayed in one last weekend. Would heartily recommend it, although for anyone with small children, it it adds a sort of extra frisson when you've got kind of lots of uh, steep staircases and these sorts of things. But as I said, I woke up, as you do, in a Gothic temple, looked past the statue of a Saxon god and onto the frost outside. But listening on the radio, I had the final few overs of Australia's fantastic second test against the West Indies. And we've talked before on this podcast about the sheer delights of cricket on the radio. But what this really brought home to me is that perhaps it's at its most delightful when it's most incongruous. So I could not have been further from Brisbane. And yet it felt so exciting and thrilling to feel like I was taking as much of a part in those final moments as anyone at the Gabba. Um, And it did also make me think again of where radio sometimes beats TV, because Obviously, to really get a grip of what's going on technically, you need TV to really get an understanding of the nuances of a shot, the nuances of delivery. But I don't think TV can be immersive in the way the radio was that morning because I was sort of tucked up in bed, listening to the sounds of the crowd, overexcited Carl Hooper. 
And it really didn't feel like a big leap to, to imagine myself there. Where somehow when you're on TV, it's very much you and the screen. And you're getting a great experience, but it's clearly you in one place, the screen in another place. It's that thing of the mind's um, eye, isn't it? It's the ability of the mind's eye to take you somewhere more than, as you say, literally literally seeing it can, can, can do. I should very, just as a very brief aside, um, also listening to the end of that game on the radio, and I'd been quite excited in the couple of days before, um, and my wife had kind of twigged onto that. And then just as we got to the last few overs... Um, my son had a bit of a meltdown and I had to take him outside to go for a little walk. And my wife in the kitchen cooking the supper um, came out, leaned over the front gate to the road and said, they won, they won. To which I said, well, who won? And she looked slightly panicked and said, ah, that's a good question. Well, they just said they won and they took out the stumps. And I thought, God, well, that could mean either the stumps have been bowled or someone like a batsman's grabbed the stump in celebration at this thing. And so there was this kind of complete, complete and utter confusion that existed for a few minutes um, around the great excitement of this of this game. This is the um, this is the delight of listening to cricket with um, uh, enthusiastic uh, partners, children. Um, I similarly were listening to England's great triumph in Hyderabad. Um, mm. I was playing with my daughter Iris. And at the moment when Ashwin was stumped, I sort of enthusiastically punched the air. And Iris looked at me deeply bemused as to what her mad, mad father was And probably was, slightly um, distressed about what kind of, yeah, what you were up to. And, 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 yes, one hold day... Hold it together, and, father, you know, hold it to, together. This game, this game well, of stacking in, blocks is not, does not warrant that kind of a reaction. <laughs> Let me tell you now, father. In 30 years' time, this will be great material for her on the, um, you know, psychiatrist's couch. Um, now, you... Um, it, well, there's so much we could... It has been ridiculous, you know... Well, I was going to say it's been a ridiculous few weeks of Test Cricket. It was a particularly ridiculous Sunday. Yeah. Um, you, you had this sort of more, more, more reflections on that, that day at the Gabba. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I also had, since we last recorded, I um, went to the Big Bash final at the SCG. The Sydney... I can't even remember the name of the... Sydney versus Brisbane. I can't remember what one of them's scorching and one of them's tepid or something. Um, anyway, Brisbane won. Got very cheap seats in the kind of posh part of the ground where you're in armchairs with your own beer fridge next to you, which was kind of a new way of you know new way of seeing the game. Um, it's the dream. It was. It was kind. Of, yeah, it was kind of the dream. Well, I did. I did yearn for a hard bucket seat and you know someone kind of pouring pouring beer down your back by the end of it. It felt too comfortable almost. Um, but the grass is always greener. Um, but yeah, the West Indies Australia series was was an interesting one because there were all of these sort of um, mini narratives that were playing out across it, all the way from you know this whole narrative about the death of you know this proving the death of Test cricket and the fact that the West Indies were going to get absolutely spanked, um, through to interesting to see Steve Smith as an opener moving up you know towards the end of his career moving up to to open after Warren's retirement so something that many ba- not many batsmen have done you know usually people moving down the innings towards um, as their careers careers progressed um, and then of course Shamar Joseph those five wickets in Adelaide everyone wondering where he was gonna where he was gonna go now um, as you say there's so much to be said about this series but there were two particular moments that I managed to see both of live that that really struck me um the first one of which was um, Joseph's ball to Travis Head in the second innings when Head was on a king pair. And at that point, it really felt like Australia were going to get away 
with this you know they'd had that Cameron Green and Steve Smith had had a big you know relatively big partnership and then um and you know Joseph had been kind of terrorizing with pace as he does but then his first ball Travis had the kind of slower ball Yorker to take out the off stump was just this incredible piece of bowling given the context because given the context you'd expect him to fire something you know quick down there but that presence of mind given the situation Travis Head was in to take the pace off the ball and suddenly with those two wickets in two balls the game was back on that was really kind of a real pivot point in the game and then secondly talking of of Steve Smith um, fast forward to Australia being nine wickets down and needing kind of 20 odd to win um steve smith gets he gets hit by a, a bouncer from shamar joseph um, and then the next over he's facing alzari joseph and he premeditates did you see this shot he premeditates this scoop where he steps outside the off stump and scoops it over his shoulder to 140 kilometer an hour ball so, so this was the moment i nearly i nearly gave up i was listening and i just that I my it sounds tragic to say because obviously it was such a wonderful bit of cricket, but I, my heart sank. I just thought this is it. He's kind of broken the back of this West Indies totally. team here. Well, you that know. was the thing. Like as a moment of bravado from Smith, it was extraordinary, and that's kind of he. It was him taking command of the game, saying this is what I can do to this bowling. So you might have us nine down, but I'm gonna I'm gonna win this. And I think everyone's kind of shoulders collectively shrugged a little bit or any non-Australian shoulders um, kind of collectively shrugged a little bit at that at, at that moment. And suddenly it felt like we were back to the invincible old Steve Smith and how on earth do you bowl to this guy? And of course he can make as many runs as he possibly can. Um, so it was just wonderful, you know, as ever in these series where there are big headlines that come out of them and big debates that come out of them, but just these tiny little moments that make these make these games come alive whether you're watching them on the tv or, or listening to them on the um on the radio obviously people do have great debuts at you know in test cricket it happens but i still can't something like shamar joseph the way he's entered the game this sort of star is born excitement around him i think has been so thrilling um and i think we all if we all look back to the previews of this series it was it was miserable, wasn't it? You know, there was a general consensus that I think, as you say, this was like emblematic of a, of a dying game. What a horrible mismatch. I remember listening to a bit of the radio of the first test where I, I won't get the title right, but a senior local politician in Adelaide was basically lamenting the fact that they'd been left with the West Indies and why couldn't they have mm-hmm. a sort of proper test team visiting? Um, so, yeah, it, it's... a. a, a a wonderful game and a game that's given joy to way beyond I think the fans of just the two the two teams. From the archives and for this the 172nd episode of Reverse Swept Radio, Andy is going to um, tell us about Benjamin West's painting The Cricketers and the battle to have it extradited to the US. So five men are having a chat, two are sat on a bench while three stand. They're all wearing very fine clothes, three-piece suits made up of matching coats, waistcoats and trousers. The coats sparkle with golden thread buttonholes. There's a rather morose dog sitting in the bottom right corner and there's a bridge in the background. But most significantly for our purposes, there are two cricket bats. So this is the scene in a painting called The Cricketers, which was the work of Benjamin West. So West was an American. He came to England in 1763 at the age of 25 for what was supposed to be a brief visit, but he never left. 
became hugely successful and a very major figure in the British art establishment. So he was president of the Royal Academy. He was a historical painter to the court of King George III. And he's thought to have painted this painting, The Cricketers, within just a few months of getting to England. So this was a sort of early making his name sort of painting. And it's a portrait of a group of fellow Americans who are studying in the UK. So you could maybe see how that, that kind of commission would have, would have uh, come about with sort of fellow diaspora members. Now, just a couple of years ago, the Cricketers was at the centre of a cross-Atlantic tug-of-war. Its American owner wished to permanently move the painting from the UK to the US. And it was at this point that the Reviewing Committee on the Export of Works of Art and Objects of Cultural Interest stepped in. So I don't normally get excited about sort of random... Well, actually, to be honest, I do get quite excited about random government committees, but <laughs> there we go. I get, I get particularly... <laughs> it's your job, after all. It sort of is. I get particularly excited about this government committee. Um, it looks at significant art and objects being taken out of the UK and judges if they're significant enough to meet any of what are called the Waverley criteria. So there are three of those. Uh, more on them in a moment. If it does meet those criteria, the committee can temporarily block the export and give purchasers the chance to buy it and keep it in the UK. So you said a second ago, the US owner of this painting. So this painting was, what, in a collection in the UK, but still owned by someone in the US? Yeah, it's a good question. So on loan or something into a collection? It's a very good question. I haven't been able to track this. And it's kind of an interesting feature, I guess, um, like any other private asset. For a, for a lot of these works of art, there isn't a sort of very clear cut, you know, A bought it, then B bought it, then C bought it. But yeah. exactly as you say, it seems to have been an American ownership <laughs> for a while, but in the UK... For, for a chunk of it. And the, the point at which it became of interest to the committee was the point at which it was being moved out to the UK. Um, and and is, this an, is this a known painting? I mean, I don't think I've ever heard of it, but that doesn't necessarily say much. Like, is, is this painting generally known to the public? So West is a big-ish name. I think, and I'm sort of at the limits of my um, 18th century art knowledge here, but I think it's possibly fair to say he was maybe bigger at the time than he was now, but I think he's still uh, still sort of very highly regarded and a big name. His big thing particularly, as far as I could see, is sort of big dramatic uh, battle scenes. Um, I think this painting, uh, I mean, I don't think it would be... I don't think it would be right to say that it had a public profile. You know, this is not one one of those works of art that you could, you know, if you sort of showed this as part of some kind yeah, of quiz, very go, few yes, people would be one. able to yeah. tell you what yeah. it was. Yeah, but it is at the um, National Portrait Gallery. It seems. Uh, so no, it's now uh, it's it's now being uh, the reference to it now. I think that's the American Portrait Gallery, isn't it? Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. I'm, um, I'm jumping the gun. Anyway, continue yeah. continue with the story. So No, well, so the committee, as is its uh, role, criteria. took a look at the cricketers and they decided that it met the third of the Waverley criteria, which means they judge it to be of outstanding significance for the study of some particular branch of art, learning or history. One of those branches was the American diaspora before the American Revolution and another one was cricket. Um, the committee noted that the painting came at a crucial period in the development of the game as an elite sport, and it was a rare depiction of an early game of cricket. 
they agreed a six-month export ban and set a price of just over 1.2 million. So this is sort of how the committee works. They won't stop a work. I think I'm right in saying, again, I, I, I was a learner to this only a few weeks ago. Um, I think it's very rare for them to sort of say a work just cannot go full stop. But they effectively create a temporary period where an, another owner can come forward, purchase the painting and, and, and commit to keeping it in the UK. Now, not surprisingly, given what the committee said, a lot of the debate came down to how much this really is a painting about cricket. The painting's owner not unreasonably made the case that these were Americans painted by an American for an American commission, all of which is true. Um, They argued that the two bats were just props. And again, you can see the owner's point. There is no cricket being played in this painting. One bat is being lent on like a walking stick. The other's been discarded on the floor. And to put this into the context of the art of the time, the painting follows the British 18th century tradition of the conversation piece. So it's an intimate portrait of friends talking. Um, You'd often get... When you look at the... um... When you look at the painting, and I'm, you know, looking at it on uh, Wikimedia Commons, and so therefore not really getting the full effect of seeing, you know, standing in front of it, but you kind of don't even notice the cricket bats. You know, it it really is, as you say, it's a portrait of five people. The dog is quite is quite striking, as you say, pretty sad little fellow down there, poor thing. Um, But the cricket bats, you don't really, yeah, you don't really notice at all, do you? No, and I, I think you are, this, this is why I think you have some sympathy for the American owner. Um, the committee nevertheless suggested the players could be resting after having played. I think that's a little bit of a stretch. Um, they also argued um, that even if the bats were just props, and here I quote, their presence was intentional as symbolic of status and British nationalism. They may be right, but there does seem to me an important difference between saying that the painting shows early cricket or saying that it shows us cricket bats as symbols. And I think you can say that both these things in their own way are are interesting. Um, I think, reflecting on it, I think it's, in my view, the painting tells us very little about how the early game was played. But I do think, I acknowledge the committee's point that it is very interesting to see that five wealthy young American students wanted to be painted with cricket bats to show their refinement and connection to the UK. And I guess this shows that even by, this is 1763, cricket has achieved some sort of more than just a game it's achieved some sort of connection to what it is to be british and i guess in this case to what it is to be um to what it is to be an american wanting to show yourself as a particular type of uh mm. you know cosmopolitan um yeah there we go um interesting i, to I know- also want, wonder whether because obviously this was very soon after the painter benjamin west came to the uk I wonder the extent to which the painter would kind of compose the picture in terms of saying you're going to have a bridge behind you over there and the dog here and and the cricket bats in your hands because this is the kind of image you're trying to create. But to your point, if that is the case, again, it shows the extent to which cricket was acknowledged as being, you know, the British thing to do, that this person pitching up new in the country five months later or however many months later it is, is inserting cricket bats into his into his work. It's a very good point, actually. There's no, we, we've got no way of knowing after the event whether this is the sitters saying, paint us with cricket mm. bats, or this is West saying, I will sit you with, with cricket bats. Um, but but it, as you, you're right, either way, it suggests that 
um, a decision's been made to include them. Um, it's an interesting aside that just over a decade after this painting, America would be at war with Britain and that some of these young men would be on different sides in that conflict. So I think you can also see the other side of this, which is you know perhaps less interesting to us as a podcast, but still interesting generally, that this is uh, what this says about the American diaspora at that point. This is a rare moment where being close to Britain was still what a young American would want to, would mm. want to show. Um, you may think the fact that the painting is called The Cricketers would have helped the committee's case. The owner argued, that, however, that it was made up during an exhibition in the early 1800s and wasn't the name that West gave to it, and the committee didn't dispute this. And I think for any of us who've spent, you know, you spend any time in art galleries, th- this is a reasonably common phenomenon that paintings after the event get given names and they then stick. And, you know, whether that was the... Arbitrary. And exactly. often it's to differentiate itself from another. There might be another pain portrait of this group of friends and mm-hmm. they're doing something else, you know, they can be pretty, yeah. Well, you could also see if later on you were trying to whip up interest in this painting. The Cricketers might not be a bad, might not be a bad title for it. Now, um, there was an intriguing rumour that the MCC were preparing a bid for the Cricketers. And this made sense because actually the painting had been on loan to them for a while and it had been on display in the long room from 2012 to 2017. Um, the MCC probably would, uh, I mean, have at a stretch, you know, have the finances to make that possible. Um, but a bid to bring the Cricketers back to Lords never materialised and no buyer came forward by the end of the six months. What you quite often find um, looking at the work of the committee is quite often institutions who will come forward. So you do get individuals, but quite often it's a museum that will come forward. And in this case, no British museum came forward. And at the end of the six months, the painting was allowed to go to the United States. Now, as you correctly said earlier, that there is a record of a painting at the American National Portrait Gallery. But I'm not convinced, and again, this may be my point, it's not obvious to me whether it's currently on display, which I think is, is a bit of a shame if true. And I think it's it's one of these things that I know people who know the art market far better than me would say that there's always this challenge when works go into private collection that, you know, you're slightly at the mercy, obviously, of the collector, whether they're on show. But I did think, what a time, you know, with cricket about to descend on the US for this year's 2020 World Cup. Wouldn't this be the perfect moment to put this rather unusual portrait on show? <laughs> To the review, and for this episode, we've been listening to Shane Warne, A Hampshire Love Story. It was released in last March to mark the one-year anniversary of Warne's death. It's a BBC Radio Solent production. It's hosted by Robbie James, who's presented for Capital FM, BBC, Sky Sports and others across a range of shows. To give you a brief sense of what it's about, it's just an hour and it tells the story of Shane Warne's impact on Hampshire during his two stints at the club. So first was back in 2000 as an overseas pro and then for four years, four seasons as captain between 2004 and 2007. Uh, And it does so through extensive interviews with those involved, a bit of sort of personal reflection from James. Um, Lots of uh, music of the era as well. There was some, uh, we had a bit bit of Green Day there. Um, Toby, what we've we've obviously... uh, He's a he, he's a figure who uh, we've talked about. Any cricket fan has thought about in huge ways and huge amount of time. Do we get something new out of Shane Warne from Shane Warne a love story? Shane Warne a Hampshire love story. I should Hampshire love story sounds like a musical. Shane Warne the love story. Um, <laughs> do we get anything new? Well, certainly because these periods were. You know, I was what I was. I was twelve when um, Shane Warne first came to Hampshire. Um, I I remember it 
very vaguely happening, but I certainly don't remember any of the detail. And so this podcast was actually a welcome opportunity to revisit the story of those, you know, the quite remarkable story of those years and the impact that they that they had. Um, so that is something new, I think, though. Um, I mean, the Robbie James sets out at the beginning and he goes, we know about Warren as the person who you know, changed cricket. But what we don't know is about Warren, the lovely, cuddly guy, um, to misquote him. Um, and yet we kind of do know a lot about Warren as the lovely, cuddly guy. There's a lot of hagiography around Warren, and this in many ways contributes towards the um, hagiography around uh, Warren. Rob, Robbie James very overtly talks about the fact that Warren was responsible for him falling in love with cricket, for him getting back in touch with his dad after they'd been estranged for a while. You know, he's he's a real Warren lover and whilst that can add a feel-good sentiment to the show um it it possibly gets in the way of some of the more um interrogative um journalism that one might otherwise have yeah i always think um and i think this on lots of cricket that the gold standard is obviously gideon hay and his extraordinary book on Warren that i still think is one of you know, the great cricket biographies i've ever read and that's a sort of attempt to do everything, isn't it? It's an attempt to take in all the different sides and i think you're absolutely right to say that that's not the interest here um you start with an interesting point in this story about what was Shane Warne doing in Hampshire mm. at all. And um, Shane Watson, uh, who he brought over as a sort of fellow Aussie, makes the point that it filled the captaincy void. So by this time, Warne knew he was never going to captain Australia. And, and it's, it's a sort of obvious point, but I hadn't really quite thought it through that this was someone late in their career, knew he was now never going to get the chance. And so, so that, that, that when, when you try to ask the question, um, it makes a lot more sense in that context. That's absolutely right in terms of that broad reason but obviously Warren first came to Hampshire not as a captain and what I found quite interesting was the narrative around um, firstly how that the thought even came up of him coming and that was just through some personal connections but then also what they had to go through in order to actually get the deal signed because obviously at that point Shane Warren was a highly kind of prized cricketer um, and commercial proposition and negotiating with his agents proved to be a complete nightmare and this quite wonderful story of the um of the then chair of hampshire um whose name i've forgotten um being at a function at buckingham palace and basically buttonholing him and saying in his words well are you effing well going to come and play for us or not and warns saying yeah of course i'm going to come and play for you and then you know suddenly miraculously the next day the kind of the deal is done um which sounds a bit like a fairy tale but as someone who works uh, not in the world of cricket and not with superstars like shane warne but kind of in that world in the music world in terms of you know kind of working through agents to get people and then you go straight to them and kind of made a lot of sense the way that that kind of um communication happened but I thought that was quite a fun story to hear actually it was brilliant and I think again as you say it's how you can have these great master plans but often it does come down to two people in a room having to having to agree something um so we, we we hear a lot about when he when he as, as you say first there is an overseas player then uh, then as a captain um a lot of what his fellow pros want to talk about is his captaincy, mm. not surprisingly. Um, interesting that lots of talk about how he was a nice guy, but how he was determined to get Hampshire off the top of the fair play league, which yep. I he guess is something about how he wanted to be perceived. That they were at the top of the fair play league. Mm. And so that's getting in the way of your success. Yeah, and easy, and he succeeded on that. So you know that was an easy reform to make. Um, there is a danger, obviously, at the moment that we see everything through a baseball lens. But I did 
hear some of this and think this was this did sound very basball so we hear Sean Udall saying what it meant to him for Warm to give him the ball first before himself mm. and to be told you know I'm one of the greatest spinners ever played the game but I think you're going to get the wickets first and that that the confidence that gave Sean Udall um, and then I thought also um, this this mantra about the team being willing to risk losing a game to win one I mean I think that's almost to a word is kind of the sort of thing that, that Ben Stokes has been been, um, has been talking about as and the well. example that was given that was you know times when he would declare on 280 when you could have got 400 because that made you you know gave you a chance is exactly what you know Ben Stokes would be doing nowadays um, the number of slogans that were flying around must have been bewildering the the other one is just find a way apparently he would say to people you know you're a bowler and you're it's getting carted all over the shop but you have to just find a way to you know Effort, effort is free. Effort, effort is, is free. free. That was the other one, wasn't it? Which I actually, and I, I don't know, as, as someone who, yeah, it manners are free. Effort is free. I don't know. Is Effort's effort not free? free? I mean, I, some, I sometimes find effort absolutely exhausting. Yeah, it really hurts. Who's 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 he kidding on that front? I reckon. Um, there was a nice. I did think because um, you know that I've heard from a couple of places the stories of you know if Warren dropped a catch he, in the slips, he would always be saying to everyone straight away, oh "My God, did you see how much that one moved after it came off the bat?" Um, you know, always making excuses for himself. But I think it's Dimitri Mascarenas. He says um, that that was actually an example of this thing of like. He, he was someone who acted on confidence and it was confidence that he had in himself as much as a confidence that he had in everyone else. And that ties in with the Sean Udall um, uh, thing you were just saying about getting him to bowl before, you know, bef- before Warren as well. Um, clearly, Warren had a massive impact on Hampshire when he was there. And this podcast really you know, kind of sets up Warren as being the kind of pivot point of Hampshire from going from a parochial as the chairman calls it, a shire county to, you know, kind of having a test ground. Um, how compelling a case do you think that is, that, that Warren is single-handedly responsible? Well, Rod Brownsgrove gets a few mentions here, and I think is is sort of... Uh, there's an acknowledgement to the way he turned the county around, but this is very much the Shane Warne story. I think there is probably a more important, but a less, you know, snazzy one-hour podcast-worthy story about the way Rod Bransgrove transformed Hampshire. And I I would struggle to think, I mean, someone might be able to put forward competitors, in the last 20 years, has anyone transformed a county like Hampshire, you know, in the way they've been transformed in terms of the, the, the sort of, not just success on the field, but as you say, you know, major international ground, major events venue, you know, the Rose Bowl. So, so you're absolutely, I mean, you're right. This is this is the Shane Warne story. But if you really want to tell the Hampshire story, it's probably the Rod Bransgrove story with um, with a little bit of Shane Warne in it. Yeah. Um, there was that, um, again, I think it's Mascarenas who's, who talks about the fact that on, on the pitch, one of the great advantages of having Warne, and I'd never thought of it quite this way, is that, the opposition is always thinking about Warren. So if they're batting, they're always thinking, okay, we need to make runs now because when the pitch is wearing a bit and Warren's turning it, then we're not going to be able to... So entire kind of game strategies were based around the presence of Warren and it becomes a kind of totemic part of how your opposition... um, thinks about you and he is again going back to that Gideon Haig book that's the thing that he talks about is the fact that Warren was both a great 
cricketer on the pitch, but in in the minds of the opposition is where he kind of did his best work, getting into the minds of people as well. I, I know it gets overused, but it was this aura, and you think the effect that had on top test cricketers and the effect that that must then have had on on, on county pros, who are obviously all outstanding cricketers in their own way, but you know they're just the, the the awe of seeing him. Um, I mean, I, I agree with your point that if you're looking for a balanced attempt to look at all aspects of warm that this isn't it but I, I was very struck and depending on your disposition you will either find this sort of um too saccharine or you'll find this uplifting the final moments of the podcast are given or radio show are given over to former players basically saying the impact Warren had on them and clearly if you're doing a radio show about Warren you, you generally they've talked to the people who, who like him I guess but I was yeah. still struck yeah. by the sort of outpouring. I think there are plenty of big players and big figures who play for teams and actually their teammates don't yeah. necessarily like yeah. them. They might, they might respect them. But um, it's a quite extraordinary two or three minutes of audio of these, these sort of um, various pros falling over themselves to sort of share their affection it for It is one. that interesting question, isn't it, that we all face at some point in our lives, which is about kind of what is your legacy? And your legacy can be, as a test cricketer, can be 50, you know, X number of five wicket hauls and X number of test caps and Y number of centuries. Or it can be kind of significantly affecting the game after after you and the players of the game after you. And the two don't necessarily go hand in hand. There are plenty of cricketers who were great at what they did, but they haven't really changed the game in any significant way. And I suppose what's interesting and what comes through from this is Warren did that in terms of what he could um, do as a bowler and the, the, the kind of technical parts of, of leg, leg spin, but then also of his influence on other players. And this is a very eloquent depiction of that, I think. And I think it, it, it gets to an idea, we sometimes have this old-fashioned notion that greatness um, often is a selfish thing. Mm. We often think of some of the great players as being not team players, as being really difficult to play with. And this sort of version of Warren kind of blows that out of the water. It says you can be great, you can be the wonderful talent, and you can take people with you. You know, you don't have to be some awful um, diva. I'm sure he was an awful diva at points, by the way. I find it impossible to imagine he wasn't. But the idea that you can measure a player um, and a leader not just by what they achieve, but how they pull other people up, I think is... um, is a as you say a great part of the Warren legacy. God, we're we're just we're we're, we're living up to the hype of the um of the of the Hampshire love love story, aren't we? Um, so that is we've got blown away by his aura, like everyone else. By his aura. So that is Shane Warren, a Hampshire love story, available on um, BBC iPlayer. Um, for I don't think it's got any time restriction on it at the moment, um, but um, available. I think you can listen to it for as long as you as want. As long yeah. as you want, over and over again, reliving the halo. Um, and that was the, um, talking of the Halo, the 172nd episode of Reverse Swept Radio. Um, leave us a review, tell a friend, and we will be back in a few weeks' time. 